The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry and French President Emmanuel Macron have spoken out in support of more atomic power as a source of emissions-free energy. France and the United States were among more than 20 nations calling for a tripling of nuclear generating capacity by 2050. Italy has pulled out of China's flagship infrastructure project, the Belt and Road Initiative. BRI projects, including new and upgraded ports and railways, aim to connect China with Europe, Africa and other parts of Asia. Italy was the only major Western economy to sign up to the initiative back in 2019. TechCrunch today, Google's best Gemini demo was faked. The Verge, Google just launched a new AI and has already admitted at least one demo wasn't real. Yeah, so that video demo of Gemini that everyone is kind of going crazy over, it was edited. It was it was cut to look like it was faster and more capable than it actually is. But this is important because Google's making promises about this one product that it's it's just not there yet. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, the indexes ended the week in positive territory as optimism continues to grow that the Fed is done raising interest rates. Treasury yields on the 2, 10, and the 50-year bond have all fallen dramatically in the last month. Rates were over 5% on the 2, 10, and 30, and have now fallen almost a full percentage point in the last month, reflecting weaker economic growth. The November jobs number came out on Friday, and after excluding the effects of auto worker strikes in recent months, the job gains came in at 160,000. Most of those jobs were government and healthcare workers. This year, as much as 40% of the jobs have come from the government sector as government spending continues to accelerate along with the national debt, which is close to topping $34 trillion this month. Wall Street is hoping that rate cuts could come as soon as March next year. For that to happen, the economy would need to show signs that hiring, spending, and investment are slowing sharply, something which is not evident in recent economic data. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Poplava and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up on today's program, Dave Keller from Stock Charts joins me. David is optimistic that the Santa Claus rally can continue into next year. He also sees the rally broadening out to include other sectors beyond the magnificent seven stocks. Following David, we will be playing an extensive interview I did this week with Jason Barak from Wall Street for Main Street. But first, let's find out the stories moving this week's markets with Ryan Poplava. This week, the S&P 500 tested its intraday highs around 46.06, and the 10-year Treasury yield hit a critical support level around 4.1%. 4.1% was the level yields broke above this summer that caused a run to 5%. Most technicians I follow believe these levels will hold for now. This week saw company news and airlines and tech move those sectors and the market. But the other catalyst was the economic news this week that continues to point towards the soft landing narrative that has helped the stock market for most of the second half of 2023. Kicking things off at the start of the week, Alaska Air plans to acquire Hawaiian Holdings 
for $18 per share, causing Hawaiian Holdings to close up 192% on the day, with the U.S. Global Jets ETF Jets up 5.5%. Later in the week, Alphabet jumped up 5.3% Thursday after introducing its Gemini AI model. The same day, Advanced Micro jumped almost 10% on news that Meta Platforms and Microsoft will use AMD's latest technology, according to CNBC. The rally in the mega caps helped lift stocks Thursday, and the communications sector was up 3.2% on the day, thanks to the tech news. Setting aside those considerations, the economic outcomes this week consistently indicate a gradual and controlled economic slowdown. The pivotal factor supporting the sentiment was the employment data. The October jobs opening report, JOLTS otherwise known as, revealed the lowest number of job openings since March 2021, standing at 8.73 million. The private sector, according to the November ADP employment change report, saw an addition of 103,000 jobs. On Thursday, the initial jobless claims increased by 1,000 to 220,000, while continuing jobless claims decreased by 64,000 to 1.86 million. The non-farm payrolls report on Friday disclosed a rise of 199,000 jobs in November, coupled with a 0.4% increase in average hourly earnings and a decrease in the unemployment rate to 3.7%. Interestingly, this last piece of information led to an increase in rates on Friday, as the data suggests that with rising participation rate and falling unemployment, the employment situation is favorable. Consequently, the probability of a rate cut in March next year decreased by 20 basis points, shifting from 65% down to 45%, according to the CME FedWatch tool, as of my latest check. Additionally, this week brought forth manufacturing and services data, as the first week of the month typically witnesses a flurry of economic releases. October factory orders recorded a 3.6% decline, the most significant drop since the contraction in April 2020. The report also indicated a weakening in business spending in September, with revisions down to those figures. On a positive note, November services ISM increased from 51.8 to 52.7, a positive sign as any value below 50 suggests contraction, anything above expansion. Global services marginally increased to 50.8 from 50.6 in November. While things are chugging along for the U.S., Moody's downgraded China's outlook from stable to negative due to concerns about its weakening growth prospects. Shifting focus to the consumer, credit expanded by $5.2 billion in October, a positive development amid tighter lending standards and diminished buying demand, which have curtailed credit expansion this year. Finally, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index for December rose from 61.3 in November to 69.4, underscoring the tangible connection between increased consumer sentiment and decreasing inflation expectations. Summing up the economic activity this week, lower inflation expectations, decent job growth, where things aren't contracting yet, shows that we may not get a rate cut as soon as investors are predicting. It was a coin toss for a rate cut in March, but the recent data is moving towards a cut later in the year. Regardless of that, mega cap stocks had a good showing this week on Google's release of Gemini and the news surrounding Andy's adoption plans by Meta and Microsoft. Next week, there's a Fed policy decision meeting on Wednesday, but the probability is currently 98% chance that rates will hold, according to the CME FedWatch tool. That's it for this week's wrap-up. And if you think that catalysts move the market and you want to invest with an advisor that thinks like you do, call me, Ryan Poplava 
at 888-486-3939. Up next, this week's guest technician, David Keller. Felix Zuloff is the founder and CEO of Zuloff Consulting. In December 2021, when we spoke with you, you made a high conviction call that the market was putting in a top and that you expected it would decline around 30% into 2022. That's exactly how things played out. When we caught up with you again late 2022, you thought we were in the later stages of that bear cycle from the 2021 peak and were making a call to buy growth stocks again for a rally in 2023. And if people were following your advice, they did pretty well from those two major calls. So with that said, what is your outlook now for the market as we look into 2024? Well, the way I see it is we had a mini bear market in 22. And we have now a mini bull market into probably the first quarter in 24, when I expect the market to top. And the decline in stocks that I expect into late summer of 24 is probably going to be a nasty decline. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Are you tired of earning a minimal interest rate on your investments? Are you looking for a higher rate of return on your money? Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high-dividend-paying blue chips, high-quality interest-paying bonds, and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, it looks like the Santa Claus rally continues. Will it last till the end of the year? What happens in 2024? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is David Keller. He's chief market strategist at Stock Charts. Dave, there's so many things we could talk about today, but let's begin overall your assessment of what's going on in the markets. It looks like if I'm looking at the NASDAQ, it's sort of been going sideways here for a couple of weeks. You've got the S&P ticking up a little bit. What's your take on the major indexes? This market, I think, has some interesting contrasts. Uh, You know, November, December, from a seasonal perspective, actually tend to be quite strong. So 2023, in in a lot of ways, has followed the seasonal tendencies of a pre-election year almost perfectly. Usually have a major low September into October, which we did. Usually have a strong November into December, which so far we have. So the seasonal tendencies would tell you strength into into the new year. The challenge I have, you mentioned the the NASDAQ, the S&P kind of stalling out at resistance. A lot of individual names, even our major benchmarks, have become overbought uh, in the last couple of weeks. And, and what that means is the momentum has been so strong to the upside that looking back in market history, that's usually about the time when you have some sort of pullback, a bit of a reset, even if the uptrend continues. And I think that's kind of where we're at here in mid-December. We're sort of in the short-term cautious, but medium-term, long-term, still quite constructive going into the beginning of next year. Yeah, because you have some of these stocks, like you saw the pullback and some of the Magnificent Seven, but you take a stock like Apple, it's back over a $3 trillion market cap. Uh, Microsoft is not too far behind, and they're up a little bit today. So can this AI trend continue? Because I've looked at, for example, some of the fundamentals on Apple. They've had four consecutive quarters of declining sales. Mm. 
if you if you look at the numbers, it's hard in some ways to justify the trajectory of these stock prices, given the valuations, given the reality of what earnings have been. And a lot of that has been companies dealing with inflationary pressures and interest rates and all these other things that I know, uh, you know, consumers and individuals have uh, have had to deal with as well. It's interesting that we're recording this week. Uh, Alphabet, you know, Google's parent company just announced a you know new AI initiative, and and just immediately the Magnificent Seven just ripped to the upside so quickly, and it's just a an echo of the uh, AI driven move that we had earlier in 2023. It's a good reminder that that trend, that sort of theme of artificial intelligence and and the long term implications, it really is a long term story. It's not a short term thing. It's more of a long term. You know, story that we'll be talking about for for years and years, if not decades from now, probably how that uh, how that evolves. And it's a good reminder that I, as much as you know, the magnificent seven stocks have had an incredible run in 2023, they really still are the heart and soul of the market. So those companies do well uh, if investors treat those stocks uh, positively. It's really going to impact our our growth oriented benchmarks to a to a big degree. So I think the bull case for stocks going into next year really involves. Apple and Microsoft re-exerting to the upside. Names like NVIDIA that really have failed to get to a new high, you know, probably push through there. That's what I'd be looking for if I'm if I'm optimistic going into next year. You know, one of the things I've noticed, and I'd love to get your comments here, Dave, is up until recently, I would say over the last month, it was mainly the Magnificent Seven, the AI stocks. But if I'm looking at the sectors on your uh, market page, you know, you've got consumer stocks going up. You've got consumer staples rising. You've got the financials rising. You've got healthcare rising. Uh, all across the board, with the exception of energy, it seems like the the market's advance has broadened. I'd like to get your take there. I would totally agree. Earlier this year, it was basically the magnificent seven, and then everything else. Right, those mega cap growth stocks. Doing the lion's share of the gains, arguably the you know the the bulk of the returns in the QQQ were driven by a small number of mega cap names. That's changed uh, quite a bit here in the last couple of months. And if you look at some of the stocks that have had you know had the strongest Novembers and are really setting up well here in early December, it's it's banks, right? It's things like Bank of America pushing uh, quickly to the upside. Uh, it's uh, industrial names, right? I mean, uh, building materials and heavy construction names, even airlines. You know, airlines are overbought. They've had such a move to the upside. And so I think what's happened now is uh, we, you can't really think of it as the Magnificent Seven and everything else. It really is more of a broader advance. The, you know, tying back to what I mentioned earlier, I think the thing that concerns me about the market just pushing onward and ever upward into the first quarter of next year is that so many of those names had such a strong November. And if you look back at market history, you know, markets don't move in a straight line, even if the long term story is constructive, which I do think it is. Uh, you know, there are there are times when you have meaningful pullbacks uh, that I that I think end up being pretty viable opportunities. I think December uh, seems to be setting us up uh, for one of those. And I, that's what I would I would imagine some choppiness before we uh, continue that Santa Claus rally into the new year. I want to talk about uh, the interest rates, because in the last couple of weeks we've seen and let's start with the 10 year Treasury note. It was over 5 percent. And on the day you and I are doing this interview, the 10 year is down to 4.1. I mean, that is a major move in a short period of time. So if you think about how the market sold off, right, sort of July, August, you know, pulling back into September and then making the low in October, reversing higher in November, think about what happened or what changed that 
allowed risk assets like equities to move higher so quickly. And I would say moving the dollar, right? The dollar was uh, was moving uh, to the upside August, September, you know, October, November, dollar actually pulled back quite a bit. Interest rates, which, as you mentioned, had been, you know, had been rising pretty consistently, the 10-year testing 5%, down almost a full point down to, uh, you know, the low 4% range. And what happens is when growth stocks really are, you know, the 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 growthy part of growth stocks is is uh, the part of that premise is you know lower rates that really helps those future valuations seem more valuable today. And as rates were going up, it was just a huge headwind for for growth stocks. Now that actually reversed quite a bit. So I think rates coming down so much was a great tailwind for the market in November. I think the bull case for stocks would uh, would have to involve bond prices taking a bit of a break because you know bonds. If you look at the AG or the TLT, some of those bond ETFs had a really strong run here, and now you know probably pausing uh, a little bit as rates uh, as rates have pulled back a bit. So I think rates remaining low is actually a pretty good uh, pretty good setup here. If I'm looking for danger signs, something that would tell me that. The run that we've seen is probably going to change very quickly. It would be a rise in rates. It would be an increase in volatility. The VIX is uh, is at extreme lows right now in the low teens. Yeah, there's another index, the Move Index, which measures volatility in the Treasury. And we've had four times this year where it touched over 140, and they've been associated with a jump or spike in long-term bond yields. Uh, but that settled down as well as the VIX. I want to move into another area, and that is what we've seen with commodities. Uh, I want to speak first uh, about gold. We'll get to oil, but I want to talk about gold and let's say Bitcoin. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, talk about volatility, right? I mean, if you look at the commodity space, it has been noisy and, you know, not always the case. There are times when commodities are sort of a, you know, move on, not not much going on there. This is not one of those times. And cryptocurrency is a whole, that's a whole, uh, you know, a, a whole other realm we can talk about next. But if you look at the trends, right, I mean, I mean, there's been a big divergence between gold and oil, right? Gold prices have been appreciating quite a bit in October and November, crude oil, the opposite, right? Sort of selling off fairly consistently since making a peak in uh, in September. You know, gold testing all-time highs, right? Around $2,100 an ounce and actually did make a new all-time high uh, you know, just a, a couple of weeks ago. So what happens, I mean, I think when you have to look at a chart like that from a technical perspective, you have to think about things in terms of support and resistance, right? What, what are the levels at which something gets to where it's really not able to go much further? And I think gold has kind of gotten to that point. So if you look at the charts, it would suggest, you know, two things. Number one, uh, a pullback as it tests a significant resistance level. And I think that's what we're experiencing here now. The second thing would be it probably suggests there's still quite a bit of strength uh, underneath the uh, underneath the hood that has propelled gold to that point. I think if you look at the chart of gold, take a trend line from the October and November lows, that'll give you kind of a general idea of the pace of the uptrend. And I think as long as that trend line holds, and that's probably down around the $2,000 an ounce level for, for gold at the moment, I think as long as we hold that, uh, still okay. Some of the gold stocks like GDX, you know, broke out here, kind of cooling off a little bit. But I think gold could be an interesting play if you do see any sort of downside move in, uh, in equities. I want to talk about what happened to gold on Sunday. We saw it spike Sunday night to 2135. And then you wake up the next day and gold is down. What the heck happened there? Was that just an anomaly? I know that futures at late at night are thinly traded. So it was just an algo thing or just uh, somebody covering a, sh a short position. What the heck happened there? Yeah, it, it's, 
No, it's a really good question. I think, I mean, part of it, it certainly was a, it was a sudden spike that alleviated very quickly. And what that usually tells you is there's some algorithm that is going haywire in some way, something that was tied to a move to new highs and it immediately caught, you know, when it, when it did push above kind of 2100, it just, it aggressively moved higher. What's interesting about, about, about the markets in general, and it, you know, Jim, you've been following the market so long, and there's a natural kind of um, arbitrage that happens. And when things get too extreme quickly, other investors realize that and other algorithms will kick in to kind of uh, correct it. I would say, I mean, it's, I think geopolitical uncertainty is a big driver in gold prices. When you think about it, uh, you know, gold is, is ten, tended to be seen as a, as a stable source of, uh, of value. So when things get uncertain, it's one of those classic safe havens. I think that spike, uh, you know, we've now come down a little bit, but overall, the trend is still pretty constructive. So I, I think gold is overall uh, pretty much in good shape. Again, as long as we hold above $2,000 an ounce, I think I think we're OK. And do you think we can hold above it? Because, uh, you know, so far, it looks like it's been holding. Usually when it hits 2000 doesn't stay there very long and it corrects. But so far, we're still holding. It seems to be, and I think a lot of that is going to be tied to expectations in the equity markets. I think uh, next week with the Fed meeting, uh, you know that that's where a lot of investors. I mean, no no expectation of a change from uh, Powell and team in terms of rates, but I think a lot will uh, will uh, reasonably be hanging on to his comments about what to expect in twenty twenty four and. You know, if there is an implication that inflation is still an issue that we need to be grappling with, which seems like less and less the case, uh, if there's an implication that, you know, rate hikes are still on the table for some reason, that's when I can see, I, I think you could see gold getting a bid to go much, uh, much higher. I think where gold would struggle is most likely if equities are, are sort of given the green light to go much further. I don't see a scenario where both stocks and gold are making new all time highs around the same time, although that's possible. I would say there's probably a bit more of an inverse relationship right now. So I think I think it's possible, but I think it has a lot to do with the uh, stability of the equity markets going into the first quarter. And let's talk about something that influences gold. What's your take on the dollar here? Yeah. So again, I mean, I think two of the big changes in uh, you know going into the fourth quarter here have been a quick pivot in interest rates, obviously from going up to going down, and then the dollar. And the dollar really was. Uh, you know, in a pretty good uptrend uh, through the through the summer going into the early early fall. And in September, we're looking at the dollar actually breaking to a new high for 2023. It almost, you know, I, I remember thinking, you know, are we going to go and retest the 2022 highs? I mean, we're really in a in a good uptrend. It wasn't to be. And 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 the dollar sort of stalled out, sort of in that 105, 107 range. And now has pulled back, pulled back a little bit. I think, again, I think the bull case for stocks involves rates remaining low and it and it involves the dollar remaining uh, relatively stable and certainly not resuming its uptrend. I think when you know when you have an environment like this where stocks seem to be in a certain trajectory, certainly seem to be in a bullish phase, a lot of stocks working, I look for those signs outside of the equity markets that would tell me something's changing and whatever conditions are allowing stocks to thrive, that's different. And so things I would be looking for would be a spike in volatility, a spike in interest rates, a spike in the dollar. And anyone or a combination of those things would tell me to be a little bit wary about further upside for stocks. I wanted to uh, go back to the Magnificent Seven for a minute because they're, you know, on the day we're speaking, they're they're doing quite well. And you've got some of the PE multiples and the valuations of these companies, you know, Microsoft worth. Uh, two and three quarters uh, trillion dollars. You've got Apple worth at least $3 trillion. 
the the multiples on some of these companies are are some of the highest. It harkens back, in some ways, back to like the internet phase when we saw companies like Cisco. You know, had twenty billion in sales, but had a market cap of six hundred billion. <laughs> there, there are so many similarities, and it's funny in this sort of environment when you have a group of stocks that have grown significantly. They've obviously been in a in a pretty good you know bullish trend for quite some time. Their valuations have ballooned uh, over time. I've I've always found you're going to be a lot happier if you don't look at the multiples because it's gonna it's gonna convince you that things are way overextended. Um, the reality is, I mean, and and I remember this from my days at Fidelity. I was always taught the left, even if let's say AI is this huge bubble, which I don't think it necessarily is, but even if it was, there's a lot to be made on the left side of the bubble when valuations just go to extreme levels. I'm concerned in the same way. I think you're implying, Jim, is there? Uh, you know, I I started in the industry right in 2000, so I wasn't. They're investing in the late 90s, but a lot of my early conversations with mentors were all about that period and what their experiences were and recognizing the change from 98, 99 to more of a 2000, 2001 and seeing how things had rotated and how that bubble sort of evolved. I'm seeing a lot of similarities in terms of the the way that technology uh, names, particularly around AI, are bid up to extreme levels. Um, I, I see way too many stocks with you know negative bottom line earnings that you know the stock prices are going up, and that's another thing that was kind of classic of that era was you know names going higher because of the promise, the expectation of future earnings, not actual earnings today. Uh, and, and and so I think again, I think it's a it's a long term play uh, for something like AI. What's interesting about the Magnificent Seven, though, Jim, is if you look at it, you know, honestly, we tend to think of defensive sectors as things like consumer staples, maybe some healthcare, uh, you know, real estate, utilities, kind of these low volatility defensive positions, which overall had have stood the test of time for sure. But I think in 2023, you need to think of mega cap technology, the Microsofts, the Apples, the Alphabets, their offense, because they all have ties to AI, they all have prospects for growth, but they're also actually very good defense. A stock like Microsoft actually often does quite well when the market is uncertain. So I think thinking of those mega cap names as more core holdings that could help you weather periods of uncertainty, that's more how I'm thinking of it. I, I would encourage others to do the same. So given where we are in terms of valuation, you think this can extend into next year? As we talked about earlier, we're seeing a broadening of the market advance is starting to take place in other sectors. If you were setting yourself up for the new year, where would you be putting your bets? No, really good question. I mean, I think to 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 start with, I mean, my base case is, uh, you know, we're in a choppy sort of overbought condition. And all that means is we've had such a run so quickly that I don't think it's a reasonable expectation that uh, growth stocks will just continue to pound higher December, January, February. I think there's a lot of choppiness between here and then, uh, uh, primarily. So, you know, I think looking at looking for stocks that are pulling back to actionable levels, a, a chart like Adobe comes to mind, right? It had a really good run, but it's pulled back here recently. I think those are the types of uh, of names I would be looking for, uh, you know, at a, on, a, on a bottom up level. Look for charts that have had good runs that are taking a bit of a breather, pulling back a little bit from extreme levels, uh, and even some financials, some industrials could certainly some healthcare names could certainly fit into that uh, category as well as we go through the month of, uh, of December. I think going into next year, it's going to be a lot of a, a thinking about you know, transitioning from a period of rate hikes to the Fed lowering rates. And, and again, that's a very different environment uh, all of a sudden. Um, I, I think sticking with leadership names that have done well, I, I, I don't have a problem with 
you know, uh, focusing on on some of the growth leadership names and holding those as core positions. I'm looking more uh, on an actionable basis. I'm looking outside of there. And I think particularly uh, in the industrial sector, in financials, these are more value-oriented areas of the market that have not particularly done well, but in the last quarter have really started to reemerge. I like charts that are emerging in a period of emerging strength. And so I would be looking in some of those areas as well. Yeah, because when you, you look at some of these stocks, and, and especially if rates come down, if the economy weakens, some of these stocks, uh, I don't care if you're looking at healthcare, some of the consumer staples, looking at REITs, the yields on some of these are now really competitive with treasuries, especially with the drop in the 10-year, the two-year, and the 30-year bond. And, and that's a big change. Right? I mean, for, for the longest time, rates were near zero. So any company yielding even a little bit was an attractive option relative to bonds. That's now flipped all of a sudden. And as bonds, you know, as uh, as rates went up so high, all of a sudden, just, you know, normal treasury bond savings accounts, all of a sudden are a good source of potential income. Uh, I mean, talk about a flip in the in the narrative. But now all of a sudden, you're starting to see that change once again. And you had a lot of more value-oriented names, some of the higher dividend payers and some of those lower volatility sectors, prices have gone down so much. You're actually getting a really dis- decent dividend yield and with rates coming down, compelling alternatives. So I certainly think, uh, you know, again, in periods of market uncertainty, looking at areas where you have different, uh, you know, you have an income stream outside of just capital appreciation, uh, pretty compelling. Banks coming down quite a bit have a pretty decent yield uh, in a lot of sectors. You're seeing uh, in staples uh, as well, a lot of good dividend payers uh, as well. That's a That's a good way to sort of diversify away from this promise of an AI-fueled frenzy to the upside. Let's remember that uh, equities have a number of different ways to generate income for investors. All right. Well, listen, David, as we close, why don't you tell our listeners about stock charts? Uh, One of my favorite pages is your market summary page. I can go around the globe in every asset class and get that on one screen. Our goal at Stock Charts is to empower investors to make better decisions. And I always tell people it's all about your situational awareness, right? It's all about understanding what's happening around you as an investor. I think you alluded to the uh, market dashboard, which is something I have up on a monitor all day. And it's basically at one glance, what's happening, what's working, what's not working, uh, what's happening to rates, what's happening to currencies, commodities, cryptocurrencies, which names, which groups are really on the move. And uh, you know, just recently, when you see airlines rotate higher very quickly, when you see rates coming down, all of those sort of, you know, the, that the initial uh, information came from the dashboard. And it maybe doesn't always give you the questions, uh, the answers. It does help you understand the questions that you need to be focused on. Uh, and then from there, obviously, we have a full suite of technical analysis tools to help you better time entry and exit points. And the free part of the website is called Chart School. I would encourage people to start there if they're not familiar with different ways that you can analyze trends and momentum. Chart School is a free resource, really helps you understand how technical analysis can help you make better decisions. Well, it's a great, great. It's my go-to page. First thing I get up in the morning, go to my laptop, go to your dashboard, and it's like around the world in every asset class. I can do that in five or 10 minutes. I, I absolutely love it. Well, listen, Dave, I want to thank you for coming on the program. Happy holidays and a prosperous new year to you and hope to talk to you in the new year. I appreciate it, Jim. Happy holidays to you and uh, and your listeners. Yeah, look forward to doing it again uh, in the new year. Take care. Dr. Alan D. Thompson is one of the world's top-ranking researchers and consultants in the AI space. 
He also produces a must-read monthly update newsletter titled The Memo, which provides bleeding-edge AI news and analysis. It's widely followed by many of the Fortune 500 companies, including a number of the research labs that are developing these products to stay abreast of what their competitors are doing. Google has now released their Gemini model. It's supposed to be a competitor to ChatGPT or to OpenAI's model. And I've already seen a demo of it. It shows what appears to be very human-like thinking and common sense reasoning capabilities. What is your impression of it right off the bat? Google DeepMind Gemini is fascinating to me. The benchmarks are confronting and outperforms GPT-4 in pretty much everything. Uh, for the first time, it's breached a massive AI benchmark called MMLU. So humans, when they take the MMLU score 89.8%, Gemini is at 90.04%. It's the first time we've breached that 90% mark with uh, the MMLU benchmark. So this is a huge day. It's a big milestone. And it actually bumped up my entire conservative countdown to AGI because just given that we've been waiting for AI to be smart enough to breach this kind of test it is a huge milestone. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Hi, everyone. This is Jason Bierko of Wall Street for Mean Street. Welcome back to another Wall Street for Mean Street podcast interview. Today's special guest is a returning guest, and he's actually one of my favorite of all time. Been listening to him for many, many years. He's the president of Financial Sense Advisors, a longtime money manager, and he's the host of the popular Financial Sense News Hour, I think since the 1990s. Jim Poplava, thank you for joining me again. Hey, Jason. Good to be back with you. Happy holidays. Thanks. You too. So we're recording this interview on Wednesday, December 6, 2023. The dollar index is rallying a little bit to 104.21. Paper gold prices have been smashed a little bit. I think they're down around $120 in the last couple of days, down to like $2,020. But I want to get your thoughts on the lag effects of the interest rate hike. So 18 plus months now of higher interest rates. What type of damage do you think that they've done to the real economy and to asset markets so far? Well, I think there's, when you look at what damage they've done, Jason, you got to look at two sides of the economy. You've got the private sector and you have the government sector. And if we look at the private sector, it's hurting. I, I think the ISM has dropped, what is it, 16, 17 months in a row. We've seen uh, retail sales, they're up. But if you adjust those retail sales for inflation, it's probably not going much. And I think we're in a recession. And I think that uh, you're, you're starting to see that now with the drop in bond yields. 
And I think you're seeing that with what companies are saying going forward. So there's been a lot of damage that's done. It's just been a delayed effect. And the reason it's been a delayed effect, in my opinion, for two reasons. Number one, the the economy was less susceptible to rate hikes this time, this time around, Jason, because when you think of all the people that have refinanced their homes in the last decade, when you could get 3% mortgages, what company didn't refinance their debt? What consumer didn't refinance their mortgage? So they were less susceptible to a downturn in interest rates because they locked in those lower rates. The second thing is, and I hope we'll get into this, but government spending increased by almost $11 trillion. So, you know, the stimulus checks. And if you take a look at uh, the uh, budget for 2024, they're talking about another $400 billion in increase in spending. So I think that has shielded some of the effects of this giant hike that we saw with the Fed going from zero to five and a half in a little over a year. Well, I also think the distortions are in different places. So you mentioned residential real estate. I think this cycle, the problems are going to be in commercial real estate and office buildings. I mean, there was an interview from a longtime commercial real estate developer on the BlockWorks macro YouTube channel a couple of days ago. And the guy's been in the space for, I think, over two decades. And he straight up said the entire industry, the commercial real estate developers, the banks, no one's marking to market any losses. They do not. The banks don't want to be stuck with all these office buildings. He said it's a mess, but it's being hidden for now. It's being hidden for now. And while we're on the subject of real estate, one of the reasons that we've seen the real estate market, at least on the residential side, hold up as much has been supply. And I would give you government policy is the reason for that. Number one, as we just talked about in the last decade, everybody locked in on those 3% mortgages. So Jason, if mortgage rates are at seven and a half or 8%, why would I dump my house and get rid of a 3% mortgage and go buy a new one at eight? So there's number one. And I'll give you a real live example of a client that we just went through, lives in California, bought a house for a quarter million 25, 30 years ago, the house is now worth about a million six. He was thinking of selling it, moving someplace else. And I had to tell him, look, if you sold it for 1.6, you paid a quarter million for it. And the government gives you 500,000 tax-free on capital gains on a house. So you're going to have 850,000 in capital gains of which you're going to owe 300,000 in taxes. So why would I trade out of my house and trade a 3% mortgage for an eight, or why would I want to pay those kind of capital gains, especially if you live in a high tax state like I do in California? Yeah, I agree. And a lot of people are leaving the state of California, but that's a good point you brought up. Also, I think the government, I think the Biden administration changed the 1031 tax exchange law, which is what a lot of real estate investors and people who are changing homes used to do. And I think, I don't think you can do that anymore. I think you have to pay taxes every time you change homes. Yep. It used to be uh, back in the old days. And here's another thing the government hasn't done. And this, once again, gets back to my inflation thesis. In 1994, they did away with uh, the exchange. If you, let's say you sold a house for a million, or let's just take this same example I just gave you. You sold the house for a million six. But if my client went out and bought a similar home for a million six, there was no taxes. So what they did is they said, we're going to give you capital gains free, 250 if you're single, 500 if you're married. But Jason, they have an index that since 1994, it's like the taxation of social security, 25 and 32. They haven't changed that either. 
Well, the government economic data is so flawed. I mean, they, they're not updating. The, the jobs reports are revised downwards by 50% one month, two months, three months later. The consumer price index, I think they they assumed that uh, healthcare insurance costs were down 34% the last month. So it's just ridiculous. Yeah, they do something about, uh, uh, you know, they do this thing called hedonics. So let's say I want to buy a Ford 150. The price is up 10%. But then they come in and they say, well, it's got a better stereo system. It, the transmission works a lot easier. We're going to subtract from that. And by the time they're done, the uh, the truck only went up by 2%. So I don't know anybody listening to this podcast or even my own that believes that we're seeing 3.3% inflation. Uh, Shadow Stats has it down to 9 but I think in 2022, it was up to almost 18%. I interviewed John Williams a few months ago. He said it got up to just under 18% at one point in 2022. Yeah, uh, you're seeing it. Just go to the grocery store. I, I I like fillets. And a little over a year ago, I was paying 28 Now I'm paying over 46 well, um, Bloomberg News, I don't know if you saw the piece last week, but uh, Bloomberg News came out with a piece extensively going through all the different input costs, electricity, food, healthcare insurance, all the other input costs for the average person or small business owner. And all the costs were up over 20%, which directly conflicts with the uh, consumer price index. So I'm just curious. I haven't heard a lot of people discuss the discrepancies there, but it was an extensive piece by Bloomberg News. I was surprised they actually released it. Yeah, I mean, all these numbers, and, and I think you're going to see more improved inflation numbers coming out, because I really think the Fed knows it's going to have to start cutting interest rates. And if we want to get into the deficit spending and deficit financing, the deficits are so big. I want to throw some numbers out for your listeners. In 2020 or 2019, the national debt was $22.7 trillion. As we are speaking, Jason, we're at 33, uh, we're just shy of 33.9. We're going to add $3 trillion in debt. So we've gone from 22 to almost, we will be at $34 trillion by the end of this year. And then if you take a look at what the government's done, so the government has increased spending by a little over $10 trillion. The Fed's balance sheet is more than doubled from 4.2 to nine trillion as of April last year, it's pulled back with some of the QT. So you know everybody's going around like there's a mystery why we have inflation. Even Wall Street was taken back by that, and the reason is fiscal dominance. The government is now spending money and putting those dollars into the economy rather than just the financial markets. And the government counts government spending as positive for GDP and the jobs report numbers, Jim, I think the fastest growing industry for job creation in the last 12 months, it's government jobs. It's not the private sector. No, it's been 30 to 40% of those job numbers are government. And here's an interesting thing. The government share of GDP has gone from 21% to over 23%. So we're almost to the point where government spending is now almost 25% of our economy. And we know, Jason, the government doesn't create anything. They don't create any goods. They don't create any services. So that is also impacting. And that's why I think we're in this stag inflationary environment. So what options does the U.S. government have for funding then if the Federal Reserve is supposedly reducing its balance sheet? Who's going to buy all of these treasuries that the U.S. Treasury needs to sell and refinance and roll over at higher rates when you have the normal buyers last 20 years of U.S. Treasuries like China, Ger Germany, excuse me, Germany and Japan, they're not net buyers. 
That is going to be an issue that, in my opinion, you're going to see the Fed start to monetize. And the reason being is if you look at 2014, foreign central banks stopped buying U.S. treasuries. And so we changed the laws for the banking system and for money market funds. And up until probably the Fed rate cycle, banks were financing a lot of that government debt. But what happened? The Fed raised interest rates from zero to five and a half. And Jason, we have the banking system sitting on probably 650 to 700 billion in losses. Let's not even get into the commercial real estate losses. Just on their treasury portfolio, they're sitting on over 600 billion in losses. And of course, the Fed came in when we had those banks go under in March. And they said, well, if you have a million dollar bond that's only worth 700,000, why don't you swap it to us? We'll take that bond and give you a million dollars back. What's going to happen when that time period runs out next year? And so there's something that uh, we follow. It's called the Move Index, and it measures volatility in the Treasury market. And Jason, every time it gets up to about 140 or above, there's a mishap in the Treasury bond market. And it's no surprise that in October, the Move Index got up to 140. What was happening at that time? The dollar was strong. Interest rates were high at five and a half. You had the two-year, the 10-year, the 30-year bond all over 5%. And all of a sudden, the Fed start changing its story. They're saying, hey, the bond market's done our job for us. They start pulling back. The dollar goes down. And as we're speaking right now, we've got, uh, just looking at my treasury screen, we've got the 10-year note at 4.1%. So we've gone down a full percentage point. And the reason is people are anticipating recession. That's what the bond market's anticipating. But the point I'm making is anytime it gets up to 140, we're having problems in the repo market, we're having problems in funding. There was an auction that was done in October where the bankers had to increase the yield on the, I think it was a 10 or a 30-year bond. They had to increase it by seven basis points to get any buyers. So in the end, we're running out of buyers. Banks don't want to buy because they're sitting on massive losses in their bond portfolio. They've got losses in commercial real estate. Foreign central banks aren't buying. That's only going to leave one buyer. It's going to be the Fed. Unless they force people to buy a certain amount in their retirement accounts, kind of like what happened in, in wartime where they force people to buy war bonds. I could see a day uh, like that where they're coming out and saying, you know, maybe you have a stock market crash. They'll call it the Retirement Security Act, and you're going to be forced to have 20% of your 401k in uh, worthless zero coupon treasuries. But uh, basically, you're going to see the Fed, and then they'll they'll create some kind of uh, legislation that will force pension plans or institutions to own treasuries because the foreigners aren't buying as you're seeing China, you're seeing the BRIC countries are moving out. And I think you're going to see the uh, price of gold once again resume its role as a currency. And I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing gold as strong as it is. Yeah, Ben Bernanke, actually, he was hired, I think, by the Bank of Japan years ago as an advisor, and he was recommending that they start with zero coupon perpetuals, that they roll over the debt into zero coupon perpetual bonds and inflate the debt away. So I wouldn't be surprised then if that's adopted here, because that's what the former central bankers, they seem to be recommending that for Japan, and Japan's further along the road than the U.S. is. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's down the road. And I also believe at some point, 
in this decade. My my time frame is probably 27, 28. You're going to see a massive dollar devaluation. And in my opinion, that devaluation is going to be done against gold. Because if you devalue your currency against the euro, the yuan, or let's say the Japanese yen, you get into a currency war. We devalue, they devalue. But if you devalue it against gold, and I think that's coming as well. So I would argue that you've probably read more investing books and financial history books than almost anyone out there. Maybe Dr. Mark Faber and a few other hedge fund managers. I know you've read many, many hundreds of investment books. You've interviewed experts like Adam Ferguson and When Money Dies, and you've talked about these over the years. I interviewed Dr. Mark Faber in the last month or so about the history of interest rates and government spending. Do you think that the governments are actually going to allow real deflation for a long period of time? Or do you think that we're too far along here with the amount of debt and the tax receipts would, would collapse where the economy and the government cannot handle deflation for a long period of time? There's, there's no way they could handle deflation because that brings home the true cost of debt and all that collateral. Just think of all the loans that you have to businesses, to corporations, uh, to, you know, on mortgages, commercials. I mean, just look at the problem you have right now in commercial real estate. So the only way they can handle debt, you know, there's three ways to get rid of it. You pay it off, you default on it, or you inflate it away. And throughout history, the number one course pursued by governments, kings, emperors, prime ministers has always been the inflation of debt. It's a stealth tax. It creeps in. And I mean, take a look at the way they're talking about inflation. It's like some kind of mystery. It's corporations. It's the damn unions wanting more money. It's a company wanting to charge. It's an oil company uh, gouging consumers on gasoline. They'll blame it on somebody else but themselves. They're also blaming it on us. There was a new op-ed coming out that it's our fault that we're consuming that there's inflation now. So the stories just keep changing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, they're always going to have an excuse. They'll never point the finger back at their spending. One of the things that really surprises me in this presidential campaign, and I've been pounding the table on this deficit issue and the amount of debt that we're taking on, and especially now with the Fed raising interest rates, and we've got all of these treasuries Unlike you or consumers who refinanced their mortgages and their debt and corporations did the same when interest rates were low, the government did just the opposite. They were doing it in three-month T-bills, six-month T-bills because they were paying 10 basis points on a, a, a three-month treasury. I can remember during the COVID year, 2020, there was actually a period of time there was a negative interest rate on treasury bills. So now that debt is coming due. And instead of the 10 basis points, 20 basis, or even 50 basis points on 10-year bonds, now they're rolling them over. They're paying four to five. So for hyperinflation, I know you've interviewed Adam Ferguson of When Money Dies, and he wrote about the Weimar Republic hyperinflation. He actually predicted that the U.S. will not have hyperinflation, that the U.S. will just have worsening stagflation. Do you agree with him, or do you think that a world reserve currency, that this would be the first modern world reserve currency to potentially have a hyperinflation? I don't know if we're going to see hyper, but certainly I think we're we're heading for, uh, as John Williams just reported, uh, where he said, you know, we actually got up to 18, 19 percent. I think we could easily get in. They won't report it that way, but we could easily get into the 20 and 30 percent inflation rate. That would be just killer for the average person there who is living paycheck to paycheck, who doesn't, uh, doesn't can't buy inflation hedges, doesn't own a lot of assets that are inflation hedges, can't grow their income. Um, that would just destroy their standard of living pretty quickly. 
Well, it's you already seen it in California. We've lost, I think, about one and a half million people have moved out of the state. The governor won't acknowledge it. But, you know, my goodness, we lost a couple of congressional seats because of loss of uh, population leaving the state. We've had over 500 companies leave the state. And you're right. I mean, if you are a middle class or a poor person, you can't go to your boss and say, hey, gasoline prices are up 30. My utilities are up 20 something percent. My food costs, I I need a 20 to 30 percent raise. It just doesn't happen. Well, that's why you see people in the jobs data. They're working two or three part time jobs. I mean, um, there's a lot of shenanigans going on online with, um, you know, OnlyFans and things like that. People are hustling. They're doing whatever they can to earn an extra income, a side income or, or a side hustle. Yeah, two or three jobs. I, I, I've i got clients. And uh, there's also another thing that you can say, too. Uh, my generation, the boomers, they are working longer because, number one, the money they save doesn't buy the same standard of living it did 10, 20 years ago. So instead of retiring at age two, uh, 62, 65, you know, uh, you've got people that are working into their late 60s. I have clients that are a couple of clients that are in their 70s still working. So you think then that the best case scenario for the U.S., the way things are playing out because of the government spending, D.C. is not going to stop spending the interest payments on the debt, the pace of national debt is growing. The best case scenario is worse stagflation? I, I think it's going to it stagflation, but I think it probably could get a little worse than that, especially when you start getting into 20 and 30. Let's say they they really start pushing it. And I, I see that coming uh, I see a crisis coming in 25. They're going to do everything they can, Jason, to make things look good for the election. But let's put it this way. Medicare runs out of money in 2028. Social Security runs out of money in 30 or 2034. Are If you are a politician, are you going to go and tell people you're not going to get a check? We're going to reduce your benefits? Probably not. What I see happening is a likely one. It'll have to be a compromise. But we have beginning benefits at age 62. Now, if you're a boomer, uh, full benefits at age 67. I can see them moving beginning benefits to age 65, full benefits at age 69 or age 70. And then also the possibility, depending on your income, and they're already doing this with Medicare, by the way, that most people don't realize. If you have, if you are in Medicare, and you have, a, let's say, a big year, you you took some capital gains or something, your income jumps up. There are six tax bracket categories for your Medicare Part B premiums. They can go from 165 to well over 500. So they could start doing something like that, which they've done with Medicare. And I can also see them going to people that have uh, are fortunate enough to have a good income stream. They saved, they worked hard, they have a lot of income where for every dollar over this amount, they start phasing out your social security benefits. I see that coming as well. And I've lived right outside of Washington, D.C. for over 20 years. And I speak with some of the lobbyists and some of the um, people inside the chief of staff political for some of these campaigns or the people that they hire to look through bills and stuff like that over the years with my contacts. I could tell you that none of the key decision makers here in D.C., both parties, none of them actually want to cut spending. It's just a tragedy. Um, And then on top of that, Jim, you have like now our politicians are actually the best hedge fund managers in the United States because they're trading on inside information. And they're getting rich quick or getting richer, making tens of millions, tens of millions of dollars, and no one's going to prison. 
Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, uh, the, I think there was, a, were they going to come up with an ETF to follow Paul Pelosi's trades? I mean, he's done better than Ray Dalio. I mean, it's well, it's, she's she's on all the congressional committees and subcommittees on the tech one and some of the others. So she's getting the inside information and she can trade on it. Yeah. Well, they say you go to Congress, retire in 15, 20 years and you're worth about 10, 20 million dollars. I mean, it's a it's a big boys, rich boy club. If you look at a lot of the money these people make. It's faster than that now. Um, I think AOC is probably worth over 10 million dollars in about five years. That's my it's opinion. Not bad for uh, being a congressman for two terms or three, whatever it is. So it sounds like the government's goal is to then um, inflate the debt away. So they're paying back what these um, social transfer payments in nominal terms and the real value of the debt's being inflated away. Does that mean a bond bear market for years longer or no? I think what they're going to do is use financial repression very much in the terms of what, uh, let's say, Japan has done where I think you would see the higher interest rates would be in the credit markets like the corporate bond market. But they're going to have to come in with financial repression and do yield curve control because the government cannot sustain. I mean, the way I'm reckoning right now, at the present pace that we're trending and the kind of spending bills that they're proposing, uh, the president was on the air today pushing his $110 billion Ukraine bill. Uh, and th those, by the way, Justin, as you know, are supplemental bills aside from the regular budget. So they're talking about increasing spending next year by another half a trillion. And next year, by my reckoning, by the way we're going, we're going to add another four to five trillion. So let's just make this easy. By the end of 2024, we're going to be at 40 trillion. You can imagine if we were to be paying four or five percent interest rate, it would take... 40% or more of government tax revenues. And by the way, one of the reasons, one of the things I follow in addition to corporate statistics in terms of how well the economy is doing, the other one I follow, Jason, is tax revenues. And tax revenues are down by $250 billion. It just dropped again. So if the economy is doing as great as people are saying it's doing, then why are government tax revenues dropping? And that's without the stock market crashing for a couple quarters or home prices crashing. So if asset prices crash, it'll be even worse. It'll compound that tax receipt collapse even further. Oh, absolutely. They they got a real big jump in tax revenues in 2021. What was happening? The Fed came back and was inflating the economy. We were recovering from the lockdowns and there were huge amounts of stock options, capital gains. My own state of California gets over 20% of its revenues from options and capital gains. The government is in almost in the same category. So you get a real bear market, and like we did in 2022, where you had bonds down over 20%, stocks down from 20 to 30, uh, you could see uh, tax revenues drop by 20 and 30%, which so would just exacerbate the deficit. So I want to transition now to oil and energy, because I know you've interviewed a ton of oil experts the last 10, 15 years. You've also read a ton of research reports on the oil market, peak oil, read a lot of peak oil books. So I probably more than anyone else out there, other than maybe some of the oil hedge fund managers. Let me get your thoughts on the damage that these uh, ESG policies have done. I call it the energy spending grift. 
Do you think that they've created long-term supply problems for the non-ESG energy play? So like liquefied natural gas, natural gas, oil, uranium. Do you think that we have long-term supply problems now because of all the wasted funds and losses, negative return on investment from ESG policies? Oh, absolutely. It's even worse than that. Uh, let me just take uh, move from oil for a sec. Well, no, stay on oil. We they're they're pushing windmills and solar panels. Well, what do windmills and solar panels require? Raw materials. How do you get them? You get them from mining. What do mining companies do? They run these big earth moving machines that run on diesel fuel. So diesel fuel is needed to do mining. And it's not just the ESG that has curbed investment, but they're also shutting down mines. There's, they're uh, closing down parts of Alaska. They've closed down copper mines uh, in Arizona, Minnesota, Maine with lithium. And it's not just here, Jason. They're not satisfied to stop at mining here. They're trying to stop it globally. They're trying to stop a mine production in Panama. So it's not just here, it's around the globe. So they want clean energy, but they just don't want the materials that go into clean energy unless it comes from China. Well, but these policies make no sense, though. Like you said, you're describing some of the ways, but then you have banks. They have ESG policies that were put in place the last 10 or 15 years. And in pension funds and institutional investors, a lot of them have bylaws in place and the average person is not aware of this. They cannot invest in non-ESG energy stuff. So even if they want to fund a copper mine that's going to, and the copper is needed for electric vehicles or silver or some of the other key critical metals, I think the Department of Energy just put copper in the critical metals list because it's going to be needed for electrification and electric vehicles and improving the grid. They're not making the investments into new supply. And I think, Jason, the, the one thing I'm a little bit more hopeful, is I think that's starting to change. I know a lot of the state's attorney generals went after companies like BlackRock and others and Vanguard for their ESG policies and stopping funding of critical materials. So I, I noticed that BlackRock is backing away from some of their ESG stuff, and even Vanguard is doing that. So I'm a little bit more hopeful in that area. But won't this still create years, then there's going to be years before new supply is brought online? Because where's the oil production growth going to come from? I mean, I guess the Saudis can maybe increase oil production capacity a little bit. Do you think, though, that there's an, any type of oil production growth that's going to come from the Permian Basin? Or do you think that's going to be sputtering out now? I think uh, I'm in the Rosenswag camp, the Goring and Rosenswag camp, that the Permian is going to peak out, just like uh, the Eagle Ford and some of the other uh, shale place like the Bakken. I think that's going to happen in the next year or certainly by 2025. So right now, one of the things that have kept prices a little bit low is production in the U.S. has been over 13 million barrels a day. But I think you're you're watching, we're watching the productivity in the Permian decline and it's following the same pattern that we saw in the Bakken and the Eagle Ford and some of the other uh, Permian uh, or shale plays that we have. So I think we had a short-term window of a little over a decade. Instead of using that wisely, for example, instead of pushing EVs, we should have been pushing you know, hybrids. Uh, I, I think we're headed for a decade of energy and resource scarcity. I don't care if it's going to be copper, if it's going to be silver. Heavens, you take a look at the major silver mine in the world, which is Mexico. I think I read a report that their mines peak by the end of this decade. China, same thing. So I think we're headed for 
uh, a decade of scarcity and higher materials, which once again is going to be an inflationary impact. The uh, production for copper and silver as a byproduct with the base metal mines for uh, Peru, Chile, Mexico, so the largest copper miners in the world, it's all been trending down for the last three to five years. So they've been not even permitting a lot of these potential new mines or talking about shutting them down or delaying production growth. And then on top of that, that's assuming that that metals prices stay high. So if metals prices go low, then there's really not going to be a lot of investment into that. And then you add in ESG policies or higher royalty taxes if metals prices go up. It's not a lot of incentive for the miners to bring new mines online. No. And once again, I think we're headed for raw materials and an energy crisis. The energy crisis, I think, what was it? 1992, we had 112 nuclear power plants. We're down to 92. China's got over 50 and they're building 24. India's got like 28 and I think they're building 14. So China and India are building nuclear plants. They're building coal-fired plants. And what we're doing is we're shutting down nuclear plants and natural gas. Now, it's not just enough that they want to go after oil, but they also want to go after natural gas. They want to get rid of natural gas stovetops. They want to get rid of natural gas heaters. They want to get rid of natural gas heating of your home. So it's and one of the reasons that the U.S. has had better lower emissions has been the switch from coal to natural gas. So they're not just going after one thing. They're going after clean fuels like nuclear and natural gas, and they want to replace it with intermittent uh, and more less efficient forms of energy like solar and wind. Well, I think things in the last couple of months for nuclear power may be changing. So I think we did, there was a conference in the last week or so, and I think they were talking about starting to rebuild nuclear power plants. But for the Western countries, the US and Europe, Canada, those it's going to take many years of permitting. So that this should have been done 10, 15, 20 years ago. And instead, the funds under Obama and even George W. Bush, who was with corn ethanol subsidies, it should have been, those funds should have been directed instead of solar, wind, and biofuels, it should have been directed at nuclear power for cheaper electricity. Well, absolutely. It takes us 10 to 15 years to build a nuclear power plant. China can do it in three or four. So for oil production growth, then, um, it looks like the Permian in the, I, I don't. I guess the estimates vary on when, but where's the oil production growth going to come from then to replace the supply that's being depleted? Well, uh, I think it's going to have to come with higher prices. There's only one way that's going to stimulate a company like an Exxon, a Chevron, a BP, a Shell, or hell, a ConocoPhillip. It has to be higher prices because if oil companies, and this applies, Jason, also with miners, if they feel the price is spiked up, but it's not going to stay there, why are you going to invest $5, $10 billion drilling for oil or trying to find a new mine? when you're not assured that the price is going to stay there. And that's why I think you see a lot of these companies are either buying back stock or if they're doing any drilling, it's drilling on Wall Street. Hence, take a look what Chevron has done this year and what Exxon has done. And rumors are a couple of the other big ones like ConocoPhillips and some of the others may be doing the same thing. Yeah, I think Chesapeake is looking at acquisition, buying some old assets at Southwestern for natural gas. But that's a good point. So in 2021 and 2022, when the commodity prices were high and in a, a cyclical bull market, there was not a lot of new supply that came online. I think there was a, some natural gas in the Permian that came online, but that's been coming offline the last like six to nine months. Well, you know, take a look at the 2020 election. What did Biden say? He said, I'm coming after fossil fuels. We're going to get rid of them. So if you're an oil company in 
Biden just got elected. What are you thinking, even though the price has gone up? I certainly wouldn't be making some big investments when the president of the United States is at war with your industry. Why would you? I want to transition to gold now. So the gold price has been in, a, I guess, a trading range the last two, two and a half years in the U.S. dollar gold price. In other currencies, it's in a bull market in um, Japanese yen, Australian dollar, Chinese yuan. It's at, at or near all-time highs. Do you expect a new gold bull market in U.S. dollar gold price to restart soon? I really do. And I think it, the, the probably is going to be, I think you're seeing it right now. I am really surprised. I know they tried to knock it down. I mean, it was uh, obvious what they were trying to do Sunday night. But the fact that gold has held up this strong, and I think one of the reasons, it's the largest buying by central banks in almost half a century. And I think that's one reason that you've seen gold stay a lot stronger than uh, silver. But also you have, it's do or die for many of these EM countries, because, uh, for example, you take a look at what China is doing with the emerging market countries. China does not want to open up its domestic market, bond market, like the U.S. So if you have excess dollars that you're trading with the U.S., you can recycle those dollars into our, our treasury market, which was what they were doing up, about, up until 2014. What China is basically doing, and they're the largest single buyer of gold around, they're basically saying, look, we'll trade in yuan. I'll buy oil from you. I'll give you yuan. If you have excess yuan that you don't want to invest with China, we can settle on the Shanghai exchange and exchange it for gold. And that's why I think that this is kind of moving away from the manipulators. And I think gold is going to resume its historical role as a currency. So I expect higher prices for gold. And I, I think you're going to see that in 2024, especially if we hit a recession in the first quarter, which I'm expecting. And also you see some turbulence in the stock market. We have very weird market conditions now because on a, a relative basis, the gold prices are still relatively high. We're around $2,000 an ounce. So we, for the first month in history for the US dollar gold price, we closed above $2,000 an ounce. But yet on the supply side, the mining shares, the their pricing, it uh, their valuations are as if gold price is around $1,500. The junior miners or companies who, who have a pretty good project and are looking for financing to go build a mine, there's little to zero capital available and it's uh, dire bear market conditions. Yeah, it's absolutely. And that's why uh, Barron's last weekend did an article don't buy gold, buy the miners. And they were pointing out this very same thing. I mean, you have $2,000 gold at this level. These mining companies are making a lot of money on $2,000 gold. And you can see it in some of these companies talking about issuing special dividends again. And that's one thing I think that's much different in this decade than, let's say, the OO decade, which was the last big run-up that we saw in gold. I mean, companies were buying other companies for $1,000 gold in the ground. Some of the acquisitions, the way they ran these companies, things are a lot more tighter today with a lot of these companies. And Jason, for the first time, at least in, in my career, in almost two decades, you're getting some halfway decent yields on mining companies. Yeah, the valuations are super cheap. A lot of the producers with pretty good profit margins and the earnings are going to be good the next couple quarters. They're trading at below three times cash flow. So the market just doesn't believe this gold price is sustainable. Or I guess people just want physical gold or uh, some type of gold ETF exposure. They don't want mining exposure. Even Franco Nevada is cheap now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you take a look at Newmont. Newmont has a 4% dividend yield. Barrick has 2.3%. Agnico Eagle, 3%. Goldfields, almost 3%. 
I, you know, I haven't seen yields like that. So the thing I like about it, while you're sitting and waiting for the stock to go up, you're getting paid for it. You're almost equivalent to what you could get in a 10-year treasury bond right now. So I think the place to be, at least from my perspective, I would be buying the miners. I agree with Barron's 100%. Yeah, I think there's contrarian value for a lot of non-ESG energy plays, a lot of Canadian U.S. oil producers, a lot of gold companies. There's contrarian value there with the cash flow multiples. They are cheap. But it seems, Jim, that a lot of people right now, they're going into regular gold exposure, Bitcoin. Uh, they're going into short-term U.S. treasuries and money market funds. This seems to be, or although recently in the last week or so, there's been more people buying the long bond, I guess, trying to bet on the rate cuts. But it seems a lot of people are going into risk off kind of trying to play defense. There's a bit of that. And I think, uh, you know, especially with the younger crowd, uh, they're looking at, you know, cryptocurrencies. But, you know, I'm just looking at the GDX. And if you're a technician, this is a perfect, perfect uh, textbook uh, reverse head and shoulders pattern. And we've just seen a breakout above that. So I'm a lot more optimistic on the miners. I, I think they've been undervalued. And I think they're great bargains there. Like I said, you can buy them for low multiples to cash flow, low PE multiples, high dividends. And one thing I think the miners did this time, and this is just isn't the precious metals. You've seen it in the base metals, and actually you've seen it in the oil patch, where they have a base dividend, and they've been raising that. But then when the price goes up, if it stays up for a while, cash flow increases, they issue special dividends. And I think you're going to see more of that going forward. Or they start buying back shares because that's a ta tax efficient too here in the United States because then you're not triple taxed as a shareholder because corporations are paying all these taxes on dividends and the shareholders are paying taxes on dividends. If your stock is that cheap, I mean, the management should be looking at valuation and starting to buy back some stock. Oh, absolutely. That's just a good allocation of capital. And we've seen that in a lot of these companies. And we're seeing it also, once again, in the oil industry. They're saying, why should we invest? We'll just buy our stock. If the stock is cheap, we'll buy it. And you've got that. They're increasing dividends. Chevron, which just made this acquisition of Hess Corporation, they're saying next year they're going to increase their dividend by 8%, and they're going to continue to buy stocks. And same thing going on with Exxon. And then they have all that exposure to Deepwater Offshore Guiana, which is the, the major growth play right now. Yeah, that's that's one area we're very much interested in. And I think that's one of the big plays. There's still a couple of plays when you asked earlier, where's the next uh, increase in oil going to come from? There are some pretty big plays out there that they're looking at developing. I know Exxon's in that area. Uh, I think Chevron is in that area. A lot of the big boys are looking at that. Although, uh, <laughs> once again, geopolitical risk, we have Venezuela that wants those oil fields. Well, I wouldn't be surprised since ExxonMobil and Chevron have a lot of investments there if the U.S. starts sending aircraft carriers there to protect their interests. Oh, I, I, I definitely you would see something like that because uh, we may not want them producing oil in this country, but if they can produce oil someplace else, we're OK with that. Yeah, depending upon uh, who wins the next uh, presidential election and how things turn out in Congress, because a lot of the, the Democrats are pretty anti-oil with the policy. I know they're claiming they're going to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but call me hesitant about if they actually do substantially. No, I'm not. You know, the time to do it is when the price is low. When the price is low, they didn't do it. So the fact that they haven't done it now, and there's a, a special provision that I think they sell like 20 million barrels 
a year or something, there's some kind of budget resolution where they're able to go in and sell more oil from the strategic petroleum reserve. But we're down, Jason, down to 1983 levels. So imagine if there was a serious war to break out in the Middle East that would disrupt oil supplies for tankers in the Gulf. Uh, we'd be in serious trouble. Wait, isn't it down already 50% from the highs in November 2022? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, and it's not just us. Remember, it was also uh, the reserves, the Europeans were doing the same thing. They were releasing oil from their stockpiles to keep the price down. So governments rather, because Europe is just as ESG, if not more than the U.S. is. So the same problems that we have here and are going to have, they have over there, but they're worse. As we wrap up here, I want to ask you a big picture question about all these governments, global macro and finances. It seems with the interest rates staying at these levels, especially with the dollar where it is, a lot of foreign banks are going to have a lot of problems. I know European banks were going into money market funds a couple of weeks ago and borrowing a lot of U.S. dollars. I heard that directly from a banker I interviewed a couple of weeks ago. Do you expect if interest rates stay at these levels, do you expect a lot more currency debasement and a banking system crisis maybe starting outside the United States in the next couple of quarters? Uh, you could very well see that. I just read a report that the Europeans are actually thinking of lowering interest rates. Uh, they're going to have to, or otherwise they're they're going to be running into the crisis that your banker talked about. It just seems like a mess. I mean, all these governments and central banks, they're all kind of doing the same stupid policies. Uh, the last three years, they increased the currency supply by many, many trillions. Now they're claiming that, they're, they're what, that, that there is no more inflation. I've seen people on TV, the talking head, saying that the Fed has fought inflation. Inflation is dead. It's just kind of ridiculous. Well, you know what I see? I see they're trying to drive the dollar down. This might be a short term, take some of the pressure of foreign central banks selling treasuries. But all I think, Jason, this is going to buy them maybe three to six months worth of time. And then I think the real issues, the more debt that we keep adding, the more debt that keeps rolling over at higher interest rates, the more pressure it's going to put on the deficit and financing. And there simply won't be enough money or buyers out there to finance it. Right now, the thing that I'm really concerned about, you don't hear too much about it, but a lot of the financing of our treasuries right now are being done by hedge funds. They're buying bonds in the short-term market and selling them simultaneously in the futures market, making the difference on the spread. And the only way they're making money is leveraging the hell. You know, 100 to 1, I've heard figures even larger than that. And that's just a recipe like long-term capital management where some rogue wave or some black swan that nobody, you and I, can see right now. I mean, how many people saw Ukraine? How many people saw Hamas? Some kind of event that happens that throws these markets off kilter, and all of a sudden, somebody blows up. Well, that's the basis trade that you're describing, right? Yep. Well, the hedge funds, the large hedge funds and the portfolio managers, the bond portfolio managers at the investment banks, they got in trouble with those over leveraged bond trades doing the basis trade, doing risk parity back in 2019 during the repo crisis. And they had to change a bunch of rules. The Fed created another shadow liquidity and bailout program. Uh, with the with the permanent repo facility, if you remember, the roles were changed a bunch of times in 2019, similar to the BTFP that was uh, Silicon Valley. So um, and then they were loaning a par. So it sounds like the similar types of games and a new Fed shadow liquidity program. Yeah, it, it's just amazing. You would think that we would learn from history, but we're doomed to repeat it. Well, I think it's corruption and greed. I was listening to an interview with a billionaire, Ken Griffin from Citadel, and he was 
just railing on the regulators talking about how the basis trade shouldn't be banned. But I'm pretty sure, and I've heard this from a, a bunch of people, that all the big risk parity players like Ken Griffin at Citadel and Ray Dalio Bridgewater, those guys blew up in 2019 and the Fed's balance sheet expanded officially by a trillion dollars in like two or three months. Those guys got bailouts on their leverage bond trades. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you know that you can take risk and if you make money on the risk, well, you're happy as hell. But if it blows up, you know you're going to get a bailout. Well, James, I'd be trading all day long if I knew that, you know, I'm backstopped by the federal government if I lose. Who wouldn't? It's a rigged, it's a rigged casino then. Sounds like uh, profits are privatized and losses are socialized. Yep, exactly. And uh, this goes back to uh, deflation then. I, I know you've read a bunch of books on deflation. That, look, the free market produces beneficial deflation. I think it's the governments and the central banks and the leverage in the banking system with debt-based fiat currencies and fractional reserve banking and the derivatives. They can't really, at this point, the amount of debt now since 2008, they can't really allow deflation for a long period of time. No, it, it simply, it, the whole system would collapse if they did. I mean, as we started this conversation, we were talking about losses in the commercial banking center. Just throw those commercial losses on commercial property on top of the losses in the treasury bond portfolio and our banking system would be insolvent. So they can't do that. Although uh, one of the people that we interview is ITR Economics. They're predicting a depression. I think it's 2030, a deflationary depression. And there's a whole bunch of things we could get into, but I think it's going to be inflation for the balance of this decade, at least from my perspective. I'm not sure how we can have a deflationary depression when there's all those supply side problems with the commodities, because it looks like there's not investment being made. So maybe there's just so many distortions that there's uh, in consumer price inflation on commodities and food and stagflation and shrinkflation there on the supply side for commodities and consumer discretionary items. The consumer just doesn't have discretionary income to pay for that stuff. Yeah. One of the things I've learned in the last couple of years is everything you learned, just throw it out the window because this is not a normal market. It's not acting in a normal way. You would have thought if the Fed raised interest rates from zero to five and a half percent, we would be in a steep financial uh, recession right now or a financial crisis. None of that has happened as of this this point yet. So a lot of these things were thrown out. And this is one of the things that we did this year, when everybody was saying, go into long-term bonds, we were going into recession. We said, no way. We're seeing a strengthening dollar that's going to be forcing central banks to sell off their treasuries. And sure enough, you know, if, if you went into bonds like TLT at the beginning of the year, it worked well for you for four months, but then you lost over 20%. So it's it's a different market and it's different rules right now. A lot of this stuff is just thrown off kilter because of all this manipulation, whether it's the Fed, the government, regulation, whatever it is, throw it all into a pot and things aren't playing out according to rules. The best way summer is the, the distortions. It's with all these crazy policies and they conflict with each other a lot from governments and central banks. So the policies are conflicting and the markets are not behaving the way people would have bought in the past. So the people, like you said, would have went into the long bond, like Warren Buffett used to do this, buying 30 years treasuries. And instead he bought, I think, 29 billion of short-term US treasuries for Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. And because th these rules are not working and that's, it, there, there's so much distortion by what the government's doing, what the Fed is doing. And as you mentioned, what they're doing with regulations 
And not only that, I, I can't think, and I, I draw a lot of parallels to the late 60s and the late 70s. I mean, if you just take a look at uh, who would have predicted the Ukraine war, who would have predicted what happened on October 7th, and who would have predicted uh, COVID or the lockdowns of the economy. This is the first time in my career that a government would actually shut down an entire economy to fight off a virus. Well, but then they printed what they handed out stimmy checks and they bailed out a lot of large corporations and big pharma and uh, the um, stimmy, well, the, the loans to small businesses. And there was tons of fraud there. So that was trillions, many trillions of new currency units. I think the U.S. alone was over four trillion, but there was other governments that also printed trillions. So that was a lot of new currency supply chasing fewer goods and services. So the people there was tons of people that said there wouldn't be any inflation. But rationally, there's what trillions of new currency units chasing fewer goods and services. So it was stagflation. Yeah, I think one of the big differences that surprised a lot of people, when the Fed printed a bunch of money coming out of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2009, a lot of that money either went into the financial markets or it stayed on the balance sheet of the Fed. I think the difference this time is government is actually taking checks and giving giving individuals, companies checks, as you just mentioned, but also putting those checks and spending that money into the economy at the same time they're reducing supply. And you know the classic definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, and that's certainly what we have today. Yeah, it's just such a mess. And unfortunately, the majority of the problems are are from DC, and it's both parties, and neither party is serious at all about spending what it isn't the debt ceiling the newest debt ceiling agreement is uncapped through the next election yeah the, the really thing that really surprised me especially on the republican sides the republicans are just as bad as the democrats you don't hear have you heard anybody running for office talking about reducing the deficit or reducing spending nobody's talking about that they're talking about i'm going to do this i'm going to cut taxes here we're going to do this we're going to rebuild the military we're going to spend money here we're going to add this entitlement. I mean, it, it's both parties in Washington, I think, is buyed into this modern monetary theory. When you can issue debt in your own currency, there's no limit to what you can spend. And well, they're going to have to walk back the MMT because the MMT people back in 2020 and 2021 were claiming the, the stimmy checks printing that there wouldn't be any inflation. So clearly they were wrong about that. Uh, they've been wrong on so many things, but ever ask a politician to admit to a mistake? Unlikely. Well, especially if they can make millions of dollars and get out of office before the, the ish hits the fan. <laughs> yeah, not a bad job. Maybe, Jason, you and I ought to run for Congress. Uh, I don't think I'd get elected. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Well, I really enjoyed our discussion today. We should definitely have you back on in the next couple quarters for an update. It just sounds like a train wreck, and a lot of it's coming out of D.C. It's, it's basic math at this point, Jim, with the interest payments on the debt and the size of the debt. and. Uh, government spending is heading towards uh, 40 or 50 percent of GDP, depending upon how you measure it. Yeah. I mean, once again, this is a point that we've been making at this point, too. It's it, it's just simply math. And I have yet to have any kind of guess that has refuted the stuff that I throw out in terms of how big the deficits are growing, how big the national debt is, what's happening with interest rates, what's happening with tax revenues, and try to explain to me how this works out. That isn't going to be inflationary, and nobody seems to be able to counteract that. Well, people are blaming capitalism, but central bank policy and government spending like this, this is not capitalism. I mean, this is waste, fraud, corruption, and abuse at just um, historical levels. 
No, it's crony capitalism, if anything. Well, I, I would say it's the merger of state and corporate interests and uh, the insiders in D.C. and the D.C. metro area, along with their uh, corporate backers and lobbyists and special interests, are stealing as much as they can before the system collapses <laughs> or a new system. <laughs> well, what's the old saying? Eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. And that seems to be the philosophy in Washington. Well, I call it the district of criminals for a reason. <laughs> so thank you very much for your time. And let's definitely do this again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. And once again, happy holidays to you and all your listeners. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 that's 888-486-3939. Or you can also visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk